Um, It's great to be with you, and it's great to gather together. Would you grab your Bibles and open to Numbers chapter 14? Numbers chapter 14. So we, uh, about a, a year ago, began a journey through the Exodus, not just the book of Exodus, but the event of the Exodus. And it's been uh, just about a full year uh, on and off that we've been journeying together. And the goal is to really dig into the heart of this event. Uh, An argument could be made that the Exodus is the most significant theme that is happening throughout Scripture. Uh, It's not really debatable that it's the most significant story to Israel in the Old Testament. It really is the center piece of the way that uh, Israel saw the people of God, uh, saw themselves through the Old Testament. And uh, it's the story that was told over and over again. And so for us, it's been really important for us to dig into that and understand uh, what it means. And we've done that uh, over the course of this journey through three major interpretive lenses. So there's three different ways that we've, uh, you've heard me say it a bunch of times that we've looked at this story. The first one is that this story is our story. So uh, the danger of looking at any kind of a historical narrative is that it's those people back then, and we can uh, maybe extract some things from it, but that's their story, not our story. And the Exodus is never portrayed that way. In fact, uh, throughout history, uh, the Jewish people used we in the present tense to tell the Exodus story, that the Exodus story is our story. We, we are the ones who are in the midst of this story all the time. And so when we study this, we don't just think about those people back then, we look at the way that God works in us, in our lives right now. That's a key aspect of the story. This story is our story. The second lens we've talked about is that God is making all things new, not making all new things. There's this propensity in us to want to like, have it happen immediately. Like, uh, we, we just want God to, to do the work and have it be done. And, uh, and some of us would say like, there are aspects of our story that are like that, where God just stepped in and did something, and it was profound and powerful, and he fixed it in a moment. But um, just as there are those portions of our story, there are dozens of other areas of our story where God didn't do that. It wasn't fixed in an instant. Instead, it was something that over a period of time, uh, God worked progressively in. And uh, that's what we mean when we say that God is making all things new, but he's not making all new things. We, we want to, uh, to just get rid of the old thing and buy the new thing. But the way that God operates is by uh, restoring and by going through this process. And that's a process that takes time, and it can be difficult and frustrating, and that's all part of the journey, and that's what we find in the book of Exodus. So God is making all things new. And then the third lens that uh, we especially looked at through the second half of the book is that God is not just interested in our freedom, but he's interested in our formation. And that's really important, particularly in the 21st century American church, because we uh, have a uh, kind of an elevated view or a, a really focal view onto the act of salvation, uh, being born again, praying a prayer, and submitting our lives to Jesus. Those things are super important. They're really significant. But they're always the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey. And we can get to this place of saying, well, once I do that, once I've committed my life to Christ, that's all there is to it. I just now wait for heaven. And that's not only not true, that's not the way that God's designed it. So God, uh, when God saved the people of Israel, he was saving them into the formation process. And in the same way, he's saving us into the formation process. His goal is not just to free us from slavery. That's true, but it's not the end. It's to free us from slavery so that we would be formed. And so uh, particularly the last half of the book, we've been looking at the way that God 
forms his people uh, and shapes his people. So those three things, that uh, this story is our story, God is making all things new, and that God is interested not just in freedom but formation, those have become driving for us as we look at this narrative. And I want to bring those back to you because you're going to see all three of them at work today as we wrap up the series after a year and kind of uh, bring the Israelites kind of to the next phase of the journey. We're not going to follow them over the next 40 years and back into the promised land, uh, but we will uh, kind of see the way that God speaks to us as we continue on in our journeys as well. And so that's where we're headed. Uh, Let me just give you a brief catch up and set the stage for you uh, as we get ready to listen to Numbers chapter 14. So um, all the way back at the beginning of the series, uh, God heard the people of God, the Israelites, crying out in slavery in Egypt. He heard their cries, and he stepped in, sent Moses. Uh, Moses, as the voice box of God and the conduit of God's power, uh, stepped in uh, and uh, through the power of God, through the plagues, what uh, the scriptures refer to as the mighty hand of God. God freed the people from slavery, and uh, they didn't just leave Egypt. They were actually blessed by Egypt as they left. It was that crazy of a, of a turnaround. They were just given all of these uh, things of blessing. And then as they leave, um, uh, Egypt changes their mind. They're like, what, what were we thinking? So they start to chase after Israel, and there's this kind of iconic moment. If you know one thing about the Exodus story, it's probably this moment where the nation of Israel is coming up to the Red Sea. There are mountains and woods on either side. The Egyptian army, which is the most powerful army in the known world at the time, is behind them. They have nowhere to go. And God parts the Red Sea, they walk through on dry land, and then as the Egyptian army follows them, the sea comes in around them, and God in a dramatic way frees his people. And that begins then this journey down the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai as God meets his people, gives the Ten Commandments, and uh, gives his covenant to them, reaffirms his covenant with them or clarifies it. And then as they come up into the promised land, that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And last week specifically, uh, if you were with us, we uh, talked about the 12 spies going into the promised land to spy out the promised land. One spy from each of the tribes of Israel were sent into the promised land. Uh, We had 12 uh, super cute spies running all around here looking at all kinds of stuff. We had a couple giants in the corner that were really, really scary. So if you weren't with us, you really missed it. It was really exciting. Um, Some of you were like, yeah, and I didn't pay attention to anything that was going on in the scriptures because I was so distracted by the 12 cute spies. So I'm, I'm catching you up. Um, so the 12 spies went in and they came out with the exact same report. Now, this is really important to get because when Moses sent them in, he said, uh, I, I want you to look at the land itself, the people of the land, are the cities fortified? What are the people like? And what's the agriculture like? What's the land producing? And so for 40 days, they go all around the promised land, and they all come out with the exact same report. The land is good. There there are many people in the land, and some of them are are powerful. There's even giants in the land. They have fortified cities. They're strong cities that are are set up in a way that that they can defend themselves. And there's great produce. The the land is rich. What what they say, the, the language is flowing with milk and honey. There's so much goodness there. All 12 of the spies agree. But 10 of the 12 look through a lens uh, that we would call human realism. They just look at it and say, like, it's a great land, but there's no chance. Like, we'll get destroyed by these people. Like, they see us, they look at at us like we're little ants, and that's the way we we see ourselves too. Like, we can't do anything against these people, so we just need to go the other way. But two of the spies, seeing the exact same thing, 
look through a lens of faith that says, uh, that, that's true. There, it's a power, there's powerful people here, and we're really small compared to them. But we remember what God has been like. We remember the way that God has worked. We know the character of who God is. So if he says that we're going into the land, he can do it. We should go. And that's where we left it. Like, what, what are we going to do? So you have 10 spies saying, don't do it. Two spies saying, do it. And the nation of Israel is at this decision point. That's where we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 14. And I'm just going to warn you, this is a longer scripture passage, but I want you to hear not just the narrative, but the flow of the way the story is told. So listen to the, the majority of uh, Numbers chapter 14 and uh, listen to the way the story unfolds. AJ is going to read for us the first 35 verses. So however you listen best, if it's best for you just to listen as you look at AJ, that's great, or follow along, but listen to the word of God. Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Oh, 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 I know, I know, I know. Oh, let us choose a leader who will take us back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Only please do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Oh, please, do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought, us, you brought up this people in your might from among the Egyptians. And they will tell all the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go before them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day. And in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man. Then the nations who have heard your fame will say. It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people 
into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and is abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and forgiving transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and have seen my signs that I did in Egypt and that I did in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and still have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it either. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, the grumblings which they have grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall su- su- sorry, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied in the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Thanks, AJ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we come to this difficult passage, weighty passage, would you give us hearts and spirits that are in line with the weight of this truth? Would you give us the grace 
that the walls that we put up to uh, protect and guard would come down and we would in Jesus' name receive the word that you have for us. God, I pray that you would give us people, give us as people soft hearts and a desire to hear these hard words that, that are intended to soften our hearts. And so God, I pray that you would guard my words, that they would come from you alone, that uh, the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. And that, God, you would, by your grace, do a work in us. Would you continue to spur us on that we would persevere in the journey that you have before us? And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I know that's a heavy passage. There's a lot of weight to a lot that's said in there, particularly if we start out by saying this story is our story, right? Like this is uh, tough for us to get our arms all the way around. And so I, I want to look at the story in uh, two different aspects, the choice that Israel makes and uh, what the implications of that choice are, and then the response of God, which is justice and mercy together. So the choice and then justice and mercy together. And then I want to look at where the nation of Israel is going and where we're going from here. So the journey forward, kind of like, um, okay, we've landed there, now what? Uh, where, where do we go from here? So that's what we're going to do, the choice, justice and mercy, and then uh, the journey forward. And so let's just pick up at the beginning. Um, as the, the nation of Israel is faced with this choice, you have, um, you have the 10 spies who are saying, don't do it, two spies that are saying, do it. Their immediate response, which if you've been uh, journeying through the book of Exodus, you've heard before, is... Um, let, we just forget the whole thing. We're not going to follow God. Let's just go back to Egypt. We're just done with this. We're, we're turning around and running the other direction. And as they say that, Moses and Aaron, having been through this before, come back and they actually repeat the words in the same sense that uh, Caleb and Joshua said them in the chapter before, saying, like, yes, all of it's true, but God's going before us. We can do this. They're begging the people, pay attention to what God's doing. Look at what he's done in the past. Remember, he's been leading us. He's been feeding us. He's been giving us everything that we need. If God can do that, he can do this. Pay, pay attention. Listen. And as you're listening, it may have jarred you a little bit. I know it did me the first time I read it. Their response was not just to refuse. Their response was, let's get stones and stone them. Anybody think like, whoa, that's, uh, that's, 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 whoa, that's a big jump, right? <laughs> like, uh, they're not just arguing with the people now. There's this big uh, kind, of, kind of jump in kind of a devolution of uh, their way of following. And the writer actually intends us to see an, a, a progression that started all the way back in Numbers 11. So let me just uh, briefly recap. Numbers 11 started with um, what's uh, the, the, the tr best translation for the term is the riffraff, the, the mixed multitude, the non-Israelites that were kind of on the outskirts of the camp. They rebelled against God. And as they rebelled against God, it's just like three verses at the beginning of, of Numbers 11, God uh, struck them with a plague and killed many of them. It was like really just a quick thing. The riffraff uh, rebelled, God judged them. But then that rebellion started to sneak into Israel. So the riffraff began to talk to the nation of Israel itself, and the nation of Israel rebelled. That was the story of the quail, remember that, where uh, they were rebelling against God. We wish we had meat. Oh, we, don't, we know you can't feed us. We want you to give us meat. And then God says, I'll send you enough quail. It'll come through your nose, right? So it was this, like, this quail came. But this judgment, as the nation of Israel refused the, the leadership of God, 
And then it goes even a step further when Aaron and Miriam are rebelling against Moses. So the rebellion has gone from the outskirts of the camp into Israel itself and then into the core leadership of the camp. God judges Miriam and through Miriam, Aaron, and uh, there's, there's restoration there. But the very next story then are the 12 spies representing now just the, not, not only the entire nation, so one from each nation, but the leadership of the entire nation, so representative among them sent out. And they go together to the promised land, and now they refuse to go into the promised land. So there's this devolution that's happened. And when it says that they want to stone Moses and Aaron, what we're to hear is not just that they're, they want to kill them, and not just that they won't listen to them, but that they see them as not authentic uh, representatives of God. So this is, uh, stoning would have been a way to respond to a heretic or somebody who said they were a prophet, but they weren't actually a prophet. And so what's happening here is that they're refusing to go into the promised land, and they're saying these people chosen by God aren't from God at all, and then finally, let's undo the exodus. Let's actually turn around this whole thing that God's done over the last months, all the stuff that we've seen him do, let's undo it. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's turn around and go back. That devolution, that progression, is something that we can look at from the outside and say, I would never. Like, are you kidding me? Like, there's, there's a pillar of cloud in front of them and fire, and God's every morning and every night bringing them manna. Like, are you serious? Like, if God was working in me like that, I would never. Well, I, w- I want you to stick your finger in Numbers 14 and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And the reason I want to walk you to Romans chapter 1 is because it's really easy for us to look at the, the historical setting of the people of Israel and forget that we're those same people. Because, um, for instance, there's, there's this great temptation to worship a statue, right? Like they make a statue and then they worship that statue. You see it all the way through the Old Testament. And I don't want to downplay the temptation that you have, whatever temptation you're wrestling with, but I'm guessing there's not many of us that are really wrestling with, I made a statue last night and I really want to worship it, but I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to or not. Like it's probably not your thing, right? And so because it's not your thing, it's really easy to say, we're not those people. Like we're, we're different than that. Well, Paul in Romans chapter one is writing not to Israel, but to Uh, the the church in Rome, representative of all of humanity. And what he's saying is, this is what it's like to be human. This is what it's like to be us. So listen, um, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So let's let's just pause there. What what Paul just said is that all of us are, are suppressing the truth, pushing down the truth, and the way that we're doing that is that In humanity, we all, every single person, follower of Jesus, not follower of Jesus, every single created person, sees the attributes of God with our senses. So with our eyes, with our lives, with our experience, we see the attributes of God. And even though we see the attributes of God, 
we still suppress the truth, refuse to follow God. So this would be like, say, for instance, to pull an, uh, an illustration, if God is before you as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, bringing you manna every morning and every night, you're seeing that over and over again, and you're still saying, I'm not interested in following God. Do you see the parallel? So what's happening here is that Paul's saying, this isn't just an Israel thing. This isn't just a statue thing. This is an all of humanity thing. So listen to what he says. This is verse 21 now. For although they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. So here's what Paul says. When we begin the process of suppressing the truth, we see with our eyes the glory of God, the attributes of God, the beauty of who God is, and we say, I, 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 I'm not trusting that, but I'm trusting my own senses. That starts a spiral that leads us not just to go a different way, but to rebel against God and ultimately replace the creator with the created. So we will always, in some way, whether it's a statue or whether it's a bank account, we will always replace the creator with the created. And so what Paul's saying is there's this devolution that is naturally happening within us. And you may say, well, I don't feel that happening within me because I, I don't have this sense of like going after a created thing rather than the creator. Well, let, let me just give you an example. What if Jesus says, um, I've come that you would have life to the full. That's John 10, 10, have abundant life. There's a, a pathway available to you for abundant life. And I say... I know that's the pathway that's available to me for abundant life, but I have a really unique situation. You don't understand the way that my family works and the dynamics. You don't understand my workplace, and there's some, some pressures that are on me that are kind of unique. They're a little bit different, and so therefore what I think I need is a little bit different than the abundant life that Jesus offers here. I think actually if I just had this thing, if I just could pursue this, then I would have abundance. And whatever this thing is, so it may be a, a specifically created thing. It may be like if I just had uh, this possession or this bank account balance or uh, this house or wh whatever the thing, if I just had this, or it could be a derivative of the created things, a part of the created order, things like if I just had this relationship or if I just had uh, this level of control in my family or in my community, if I could uh, just have things happen the way that I want them to happen, if I could just have this position of power, if I could just no longer be single or if I could just be single again or whatever, whatever your thing is, if, if I could fill in the blank, then I would have the abundant life, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied, then I would be joyous. That's the lie that replaces the truth of who God is. And what Paul says and what we need to get is that's not just somebody. That's not the person down the pew from you who you're like, I hope they're listening because, man, this is for them. Like, they need to pay attention. This is you, right? This is me. This is all of us. What Paul's saying is the, the, the steady state of humanity, the reality of all of our hearts and all of our lives is that we see the glory of God, 
we suppress the truth of the glory of God, and like Israel, we go into a devolution that moves us away from the glory of God to replace a creator, the creator, with created things. That's who we are. And we are always, moment by moment, given a choice as to which way we're going to go. Are we going to pursue the creator, or are we going to pursue the created? Where is it that we think we're going to find life? Just like Israel, we're faced with the same choice. And just like Israel, we often choose the created over the creator. So then what happens? Well, in Israel's story, there's this response that God has that's this fascinating blend of judgment and mercy. So again, if you've been through this story before, um, your immediate response is, oh yeah, I remember when God does that. So the people rebel, and God says what he always seems to say, which is, I'm wiping out everybody. I'm done with all these. How long do I have to put up with these people? I'm wiping them all out. Moses, you're the only good one here. I'm going to build a nation around you. I'm going to wipe everybody else out. We'll start over, and you'll be better than these crazy people anyway. And then Moses does what he always does, right? If you, if you read through, like this is a pattern. Moses comes back and says, but God, what do you think the Egyptians would say? And what about uh, who you are? And he appeals back to the character of God. In fact, uh, he very specifically appeals to the name of God that God revealed in Exodus chapter 34. He says, you're a God who's abounding in love and, and mercy and uh, you, you forgive and you're, you're, you're a God who does, this is like inherent to your character. This is who you are. You, you can't do this because this is who you are. And what I love about this one is that um, when, uh, when Moses comes and, uh, and appeals before God, it's like an immediate thing. God's, it's almost like God's like, yeah, we've been through this before. Like, I get it. So if you're uh, looking at uh, verse 20, it just, Moses says all this stuff, please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven these people from Egypt till now. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. Okay, I did it. Took care of that. Like, it's like, like, God's been through the cycle. He knows what's going on. He's like, okay, I got it. I pardon them. But they're not going into the promised land. So there's still judgment coming. There will still be justice. But as God has done throughout the story, they will not get what their sins deserve. They deserve to be completely wiped out. They deserve to, be, to all be killed, and I would start again. I won't do that. Because of my mercy, I will keep them alive, but there will be justice. And there's this fascinating line in there. We're not going to take the time to dig into it. It's kind of a Bible nerd thing where, uh, where God says, uh, you've, you've rebelled against me these 10 times. And there's all kinds of different interpretations as to which 10 and what's that look like. And if you want to go back to the 830 on YouTube, you can dig through. And I was in there, but we're going to skip over it for today uh, for the sake of time. But it's really a fascinating little deal. But the, the, whichever interpretation you take, what God's basically saying is over and over and over again, you've rebelled. This isn't just once. This isn't just an isolated thing. You have rebelled again and again and again, and so I will pronounce justice mixed with mercy. And the way that he does it is fascinating. He actually gives them exactly what they want, very similar to the quail story where they got all the quail they wanted because they wanted quail. Well, he, he does exactly the same thing. And so uh, in verse 2, they say, we wish we would have died in the wilderness. It would have been better for us to have died in the wilderness. So God's first proclamation is, you're going to die in the wilderness. You, you wanted it. Here, here you go. You're going to die in the wilderness. And, and then they said, oh, we don't want to enter the promised land. We would rather go back to Egypt. So what's God say? You're not going to enter the promised land. Okay. 
That's what you want. You're not going to enter the promised land. And their third thing is, uh, if we would go into the promised land, our little ones, are, are, they're all going to be in danger, and you're not going to be able to care for our little ones. And God says, you want your little ones cared for? No problem. They'll go to the promised land instead of you. You'll die in the wilderness, and they'll go to the promised land. And then finally, he says, you had 40 days to look at the land, so you're going to wander for 40 years. There's this poetic justice that comes through the character and the nature of God, where he is uh, giving them justice, but not the justice that their sins deserve, mixed with mercy. So the question is, for Israel and for us, if this story is our story, what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Because the, the the author of Numbers is very clearly trying to get us to see through this entire account, actually starting all the way back in Exodus, that we are also people on a journey and that we are also in our journey unfaithful. We regularly rebel. And so the question is, are we judged the same way those people are judged? If this story is our story, how does God respond to us? You know, it's fascinating that, that the character of God recited out of Exodus chapter 34, where God reveals his name. Moses uh, recalls it very specifically in the exact same words as he's interceding here in Numbers chapter 14. It's saying uh, that, that God is rich in mercy, abounding in love, steadfast love and mercy to all, all generations, thousands of generations. And yet, God will not always forgive sin and iniquity will not go unpunished. And so you have these two kind of held together throughout the entire scriptures. So all the way through the Old Testament, you have this sense of God's character being a desire to love and a desire to, to forgive and a, a desire to have mercy, and yet he can't allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so what you see is this mix that you see here in Israel where there is judgment but it's judgment mixed with mercy in a way that feels like it doesn't kind of, uh, it doesn't fully express the heart of who God is. So like in Psalm 103, Psalm 103, uh, recalling again the, the state of who God is, is saying, uh, God, you, you are steadfast in love and mercy. You have, uh, quoting Exodus chapter 34, you have this love that's overflowing out of you. And so therefore you will not treat us as our sins deserve. And then it kind of ends. Because uh, there, there's this promise that's out there, but this like uh, sense of, I, I don't know how that works. I, I don't know how it is that God is always forgiving and yet will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Until nearly 1,500 years later, where Jesus would be sent as fully God and fully man in a way that would draw those two things together in perfection. So Jesus, when he comes, doesn't simply come to model for us a way to live, a, a way to uh, be like a faithful Israel. There's a bunch of that in the story of Jesus. You see him uh, going through the parallels of Israel's journey and being faithful where Israel was faithless. But in the end, it wasn't just about God showing us the right way to do it through Jesus. It was about Jesus bearing in his body and in his death all of the punishment for sin you will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Jesus, bearing that punishment, allows God to fully not allow the guilty to go unpunished and 
to be steadfast in love and mercy and grace, to forgive our sins. So when those two things are held together, there's something really important that we need to get, and that is this. When we come to the doorway of the promised land, or when we're wandering through the wilderness, or when we encounter God and begin to suppress the truth about God, and that suppression devolves us into rebellion against God where we choose the created over the creator, reading Numbers 14 on this side of the cross, we have to acknowledge what we're experiencing in Christ. If we are in Christ, what we're experiencing is not punishment. God is not punishing us. Why? Because all of the punishment has been placed on him. If Jesus has received in his body the totality of the punishment, that means that whatever happens to you, and we can talk about all the specifics of it and all that it feels and all of that, whatever it is, what we know for sure is that it's not punishment. Why is that important? I'm going to use a silly example because uh, there's all kinds of uh, very real-life examples that we experience all the time. Um, we, we tend to believe that theologically, uh, theoretically, but we have a difficult time living it out practically. So uh, th this is the situation. We um, get up in the morning, got up a little later than we should because we hit the alarm a few times. We know we need to spend time with God. We know we need to pray. We need to uh, spend some time in, uh, in just kind of centering ourselves, but we don't have time. Grab breakfast on the way out the door, and on the way to work, we're running late. We're trying to get there. We get a flat tire. And what we think immediately is, that's what I get because I, I didn't read the Bible this morning, I didn't pray, and so this is just the way, this is the way it works. And so we have this vision of God that's like the divine karmic genie out there that's like replacing our bad with other bad to balance out the scales. And, and what we know for sure through the scriptures is that's not true. And that's not true whether you forget your devotions in the morning or whether you intentionally sin against God in the middle of the day or you just start to wander away and you start to prioritize the created or over the creator. What we know for sure is what you're experiencing if you are in Christ is not punishment, but it is discipline. So Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that loving fathers always discipline their children. And so when we experience the, the difficulties, the, the weight, the, um, the challenges of the broken world around us, what we're experiencing is the discipline of God who is bringing us back, is forming us. So remember, uh, God doesn't save us just for freedom, but for our formation. And so uh, what we need to recognize as we come to the doorway of the promised land is we're still on this journey and it's not going to be until eternity that we fully enter into the promised land. There's always going to be brokenness, and we are always going to end up back in the wilderness. And that's just part of the journey. And if we don't have a theology of suffering that can get our head around that, we're going to walk away. Because here's what happens. As, as we go, there, are, there will be brokenness that will happen. Because you are going to make individual bad decisions you are going to turn from God. That's what Romans 1 tells us. But even if you don't in that instance, you live in a broken world with other broken people. Like, you know that Joshua and Caleb wandered for 40 years, right? Like, they were completely faithful. And they didn't, it's not like they like sat with some tea at the doorway of the promised land and just waited, right? Like, they wandered. They wandered right with them. They suffered with everybody else. Why? Because all the broken people around them made a bad decision, and the consequences of that decision had to be lived with for the entire community. So the same thing's true for you and I. You and I are going to face those kinds of challenges, 
And if we don't have a view of God that allows for that to happen, we're going to say something like this. God, I, I went and I prayed a prayer, and I did all the stuff you asked me to do, and I, I, I've been following you faithfully, and all these other broken people and all these other nasty people, like you're prospering them, and I'm suffering. This, whole, this stuff's for the birds. You haven't been faithful. And one of the most dangerous things you and I can do is to hold God to a promise that he never made. He, not only didn't he tell you that you wouldn't suffer, he actually told you you would suffer. Like, he said that. And so we should be planning for that, right? Like he said, this is going to be tough. Like this, this journey, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. Just get ready. It's coming. It, it, there's brokenness out here in, in front of you. Just, just get ready for it. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Um, there are multiple times every day that dieting sounds like a good idea to me. When do you think that would be? When I'm full. That's when dieting sounds good to me. So once, once I eat, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm, my stomach's full. And what I think, I, seriously, I do this way more often than I should admit in front of you. Like, I, I, what I think at that moment is, you know what? Like, I should probably fast. That would be good. Like, I fast for a couple days. Or, or you know what? Maybe instead of that burger at lunch, I should have salad. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get salad. I'm just going to get a salad. And then I get there, and now I'm no longer full, I'm hungry, and when I get to hungry, you know what I say? Green stuff? Rabbits eat green stuff. Give me meat fried. That's what I want, right? Like, like fasting, like this, Jesus gave, died so that we would have liberty. I'm eating food, right? Like, this is, this is the way I think, and, and this is the way all of us think. So let me translate. Right now, in the middle of this gathering, or when you go to your community group, or when you're sitting with your discipleship partner, or you're hanging out with other Christians, you feel this sense of, like, full. Like, I'm good. I got this thing. And then you think, in the middle of that, you know what I'm going to do? Set my alarm for 4 a.m. tomorrow. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to spend an hour meditating and floating around my room in a state of perfection. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. I just can't wait for it. Uh, And then 4 o'clock rolls around, and maybe you had enough discipline to actually set your alarm for that, and it goes off. And you know what you feel at 4 a.m.? tired. That's what you feel. And you're like, eh, never mind. And then it's five and then it's six and then it's seven 30. And you're like, oh, got to go to work. Forget it. Never mind. Right. And that's the way it works. That's the way it works for all of us. And so in the middle of this journey, we will always fall short. And when we fall short, there will always be a loving father who's forming us into his image. Listen to the way Eugene Peterson says it. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. What he's saying is, we're pumped for the momentary excitement of spirituality. Like, come in and sing some songs and dance. Yeah, love that. Listen to a really great message or read a really great book. Yeah, love that. But when you're hungry, are you still willing to diet? When it's time to order food, will you still get the salad? And the answer to the question for almost all of us is, no. This story is intended to tell us that the journey's hard. That we're going to get to the doorway of the promised land again and again and again, and through our own rebellion, and through the rebellion of the people around us, through the fact that we live in a broken world, we are going to go through difficulty. And the call is to persevere 
in the midst of that difficulty. There's a diagram here that we're going to dig into next week. Uh, we'll talk a lot more particularly about the upper part of it next week, but I want you to see the lower part of this diagram. We talk about this in terms of the way that we change, the change process for followers of Jesus. And, and that low control part that's underneath the line says that we change over time through the hard knocks of life, through suffering, through difficulty, through the challenges. That's, that's the way that we change. And a lot of us would like to just have it be now. Like, I'm good. I prayed the prayer. I'm ready to go. But that's not the way God works. God works through this long process of obedience where he is uh, constantly calling us back and shaping us through the difficulties of life. As we walk in his ways, there are great joys. As we don't, or as the people around us don't, or as the broken world comes into an intersection with our lives, there are consequences. There are disciplines, and God shapes us through those. And as we move on in the journey, we need to remember this is the way God works. He is making all things new, but he's not making all new things. And that process of restoration takes time. We began this series almost a year ago with uh, a quote from a guy named Tim Chester that I think is really helpful. I want to come back to it. As we wrap up, uh, Chester said this, one of the ways in which God works good from suffering is that he uses it to make us cling to him in faith, to clarify our identity as his children, and to increase our longing for the new creation. So I want you to think about that through the lens of the way that we've looked at the series. This story is our story. So suffering, God working good from suffering is what God does in us just as he did in Israel. This is our story. This is the way that God works. And the way that he does that is by making all things new. This process of unfolding what's true in us over the course of time. So uh, he uses suffering, it says, to clarify our identity as his children. So uh, it, it's really a fascinating thought that when you, uh, when, when you make the decision through the drawing power of the Spirit to bow your knee to Jesus, and you can just confess, God, I can't do it anymore. I'm relying on you. And that's going to happen in a lot of different ways for all kinds of different people. But you just maybe it's at an altar, or maybe it's right there in the pew, or maybe it's at home in your room, or whatever. You just decide, I'm, God, I'm in. Whatever it means to follow you, I'm in. Your identity at that moment is fully formed as a child of God. All of the things that God says are true of his children are true of you in that moment. As a brand new follower of Jesus, the first second that you pray that prayer, that's true of you. And it will take your entire life for those things to be realized into your life. That process of unfolding your identity, and gaining identity takes, takes the long journey through time, through the hard knocks of life. And over time, God is interested not just in our freedom, but our formation. And so we start to be formed around those truths. So here's what I want you to hear. The, the fact that you and I are still on the journey is not a bad thing, it's an expected thing. The fact that you have not yet walked into glory, into the promised land, simply means you're still here on earth. And it's going to be like that. And we need to have a theology that can handle that, that can, that can help us through those times, that will help us to recognize things are not always going to go the way that we want them to. There's going to be 
real struggle. And sometimes I'm the cause of that real struggle. And sometimes other people are the cause of that real struggle. But either way, there's challenges in the journey. But God is faithful in the midst of it. And that's what we constantly come back to say, God, what are you forming in me? What are you shaping in me? And how is this suffering being part of that vehicle of transformation? And so as we transition out of this series, there are these principles that we have to keep in front of us. Because it's so easy for us to start to look back at the scriptures and say, that's their story, not our story. The story is our story. It's so easy for us to, to, to think God is making all things new, and so therefore I'm new. Now he's still in the process. He's still in process with all of us. That God is interested in my freedom, so therefore I'm embracing my freedom without recognizing God's also interested in my formation. And that formational process sometimes gets in the way of my freedom. As we live into those things, we start to be shaped by God in a way that's intentional and in a way that is a beautiful reflection of who he is. But when we run from those things, uh, we run from God himself. That's the way he works. And so we need to kind of stand in and be a part of that. And so I'm going to ask us to just take some time to listen. Um, we try to do this often at the end of our gatherings because there's a lot that's uh, in that passage. There's a lot that I just said, and um, it probably hits us all in different ways because some of us are right in the middle of suffering right now. Like you're, you're feeling it right this minute. And there's others of you, like we're a relatively young congregation, so there's some of you probably who are saying like, like honestly, like my life's been pretty good. Like I, I've had a few little bumps along the road, but my life's been pretty good. Here's what I would tell you. Um, whether you feel like you're really good right now or you're really struggling right now, um, it's coming for you at some point in time. Like, I'm, I'm just here to cheer you up, to make you happy. Like, it's coming. Like, suffering is it's, it's right around the corner. It's, it's, it's there. It's for all of us. It's, it's just, it's universal. And so the question is, how am I going to engage it when I get there? Whether that's down the line or whether that's what I'm right in the middle of right now. And so I'm going to ask us, just kind of push your stuff over to the side, and let's just take a few minutes and let the Spirit speak His truth into our hearts. Let Him speak to you where you are. And so if you just want to close your eyes, uh, kind of breathe a little bit, just breathe in and out, and kind of center your heart before the Lord. Focus your mind and your spirit on Him. And just ask the simple question. Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me this morning? What do I need to hear from you? And all of the stuff that's been said, what do I need to hear? So would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? 